You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're having a good weekend. Thanks for joining me tonight. And um, I want to admit, I've kind of focused a lot of episodes on dart frogs. And I know that the title of the podcast is Amphibicast. And uh, unfortunately, I've kind of just kind of monopolized a lot of the content with dart frogs. And um, I'm going to be branching out into some other areas. I know I had the pleasure of having Pat Klein on. We talked about different species of horned frogs, their care. I know that they're really, really popular species. Well, several species that are really popular. And um, tonight we're going to get into tree frogs. Now, my guest tonight, believe it, or, you know, believe me, is not just about tree frogs. It's Mike Novi from Rainforest Junkies, and he's got his hands into a lot of different species. He breeds lots of tree frogs. He has been influential in the development of many of the morphs that are now available on the market in terms of red-eyed tree frogs. He did have his start out with dart frogs over really over two decades ago. So we're going to kind of get into tree frogs as a specific topic, but we're going to address some other things as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Mike made for a really, really great guest, and it's a great conversation. So I hope you're looking forward to it. Here we go. Mike, welcome. What's going on? Another day in paradise. <laughs> Another day in paradise. Um, Somebody yeah. else's hell, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Mike and I, everybody, Mike and I were kind of talking before we started recording, and um, we we got each other laughing. So I think it's gonna I think it's gonna make for a fun episode. So, all right, Mike, you operate Rainforest Junkies. Um, now, tell us, you know, going back when? How, how did you get into frogs? Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've actually been always into like reptiles and amphibians since, you know, I drove my mom nuts when I was a kid. So, I mean, uh, I think everybody that was into it when they were kids drove their mom nuts to be honest with you, but, uh, I think I was a little bit more eccentric with it. Um, I, as far as like breeding and all that stuff, that probably when I got involved with dart frogs back when I was about uh, 1920, somewhere around there. And, uh, you know, I, I just kind of, you know, worked with a, a lot of different types of dart frogs and, uh, back in the, you know, early nineties, the latter part of nineties. Um, and then, uh, you know, towards 2000, I started working with more tree frogs cause, uh, I mean, once you bred a lot of the dart frogs, I mean, pretty much a lot of them are the same. So you just kind of try and things different, you know? So, but, um, learned that, that, just about every single tree frog has a different type of behavior and response during breeding. So, I mean, I think that's like kind of like the, um, you know, the, the code that everybody's out to crack because it's now that we have so many more species on the market. I think that people are kind of learning that you can't just use the same method for every single species. And that's one of the things that, I mean, right. you deal with a lot of species or which, which species of tree frog are you dealing with right now? Um, well, I mean, right now, uh, we, we actually kind of slowed down on the breeding because of the whole COVID thing, figuring that uh, instead of just in case, like, you know, everybody kind of goes bankrupt or something like that, you know, in the next six months, and we figured, well, why would we have 10,000 frogs to feed and clean if we're not going to sell? But um, we actually slowed it down. But we're, I am still working with a lot of the uh, red-eye morphs. Um, a lot of them have been, are going to be going out to Japan, um, Taiwan, different parts of Asia. And I think there's a few people in the UK and Germany that are actually interested in getting some as well. But, uh, you know, um, other than that, the other thing that I 
you know, I regularly breed are, you know, the glass frogs, you know, or the uh, cinnamon frogs, you know, like a, a Thrillodemia pictus. Um, and, you know, of course, mossy frogs, too. I mean, you can't really control them. They just do their thing. You know, it's kind of like dark frogs, you know, you just go in there to feed and you notice that there's a clutch in there. So, I mean, is it is it? I have a trio of mossies and they all ended up sex and male. I mean, how really, how hard is it to get a female? It's kind of difficult. Uh, even when you do the temperature thing, uh, when you drop it down to like 65 degrees, 68 degrees, anywhere in between there, you will get more females, uh, because they are temperature sex, um, <laughs> or te- temperature determined rather. Um, but I think that, like, if you, like, a lot of people keep them around 72, 74 sometimes, and at that point, you're probably going to get about 90% male. And if you drop it down to, like, 65, 68, you're going to get, like, more like 35, almost 40% female. So there's a big difference, you know. Um, I and, keep mine in my, I mean, my frog in my basement, I've got one corner that's kind of cool. So it averages around maybe like 68. I kind of keep them there. But, you know, once they kind of matured and I realized they were all males, I was like, uh, well, I was like, I'm not going to be getting the clutches out of them anyway. But I still I still keep them in that range. Yeah, I mean, you can still keep them healthy like that. And they live for probably anywhere from 11 to 13 years uh, that, I, that I know of. They could live actually longer than that. Um, I've had my mossies. The longest I've ever had mossies was about, uh, I think it was about 11 and a half, 12 years. Um, but I have no idea how old they were when I got them. So they could very well live up to almost 15 years. That's if they're properly taken care of. Now, a lot of people misconcept that, you know, with mossy frogs that you have to keep, keep them dirty. That's absolutely not true. Um, you can get pseudomonas and aeromonas real quick with those, which is um, kind of like another form of what they call red leg. If the, if the dirty, you know, the, the dirtiness really catches up with them. So, you know, if you get a lot of fecal and urine in there, that does build up to where it can actually harm them. So. Yeah, I, um, I keep, I keep mine clean and I haven't had really much in the way of, of anything. I mean, the eyes are nice and clear. I've had no issues with infection. I just, um, I don't have a substrate. I just use, um, bare water over some gravel with some cork bark, cork, uh, cork bark, on angles and a little bit of pathos and you know, I don't keep them filthy and so far mine have been doing pretty well. Yeah. That's actually a really good way to do it. Um, it, it you're probably using a feeder feed station too. Um, I was for a while. What I ended up doing was I'll just kind of dust my trip. I'll kind of dust my crickets in a, like a deli cup and I'll drop them in on the cork block and they'll just kind of pick them off from there. Or they'll actually they'll actually pick them off in the water. So if I get a cricket that lands in the water, they will actually like dive off the side and, and grab it. So they're kind of. Oh, that's great. I, I like to I like to cup train, but I find that with some of them, like since I don't really have a bottom, it's kind of hard to get a cup to float in there. Plus sometimes I'll feed. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, sometimes I'll feed dubia, and they just kind of like stop moving in the cup. So if I throw something in there and they catch it right away, they you know it's just it's just easy. It's just my method. Um, but I know a lot of people like to do the feeder station. I mean, I know you're a big fan of the feeder station thing. I've done that with other species, but I just didn't find it practical in, in this particular situation. Yeah. I, well, the, the reason, the main reason I use the feeder station, to be honest with you, is less cricket loss. Cause there's, there's times when there'll be ferocious eaters, like what you're explaining. 
And then there's times when they'll just be like nonchalant about it and wait till I finally shut the light off. Because they'll just kind of stare at me like, are you going to leave yet? <laughs> You're still here. You're still <laughs> you know? hanging around. I want to eat in peace. Yeah. I, you, you taking pictures? You know, taking notes? You selling cigars? What are you doing here? So, but yeah, basically the thing is, you know, I would actually put it in the feeder station, which is actually a 3.3 liter Rubbermaid container that I buy from like Walmart or something like that. And, um, it's about four inches high, so most of the crickets stay in. Now those banded crickets are so wiry; sometimes they'll just jump out. I mean, they have no—they got such a jumping radius; it's ridiculous. So, um, but yeah, I mean that's that's mainly the reason because it's just less pollutant in the water with dead crickets, or less that I have to fish out, basically. Now, if I do have tadpoles in there, if I do have tadpoles, the tadpoles will eat the dead crickets, but they'll. You know, because they're kind of scavengerish, you know, so they'll eat those and then I won't have to worry about them as much. But there is whatever's left over from that that they don't eat that will start to cause pollutants in it, you know, skyrocket the ammonia or whatever. But um... now, do you do you use like the, I know some people have said they've had success with breeding by using moving water in the vivariums with the mossies? Have you had luck with that or it doesn't really matter? Yeah, that's actually how I have them set up. I'm a cancer filter. Uh, drilled into the back. Uh, what, what I did was I drilled the glass with seven eighth inch bits, and then went and got the parts from Home Depot instead of getting the sump parts because some of the sump parts, for some reason, it's really hard to find a five eighths where it puts out like a five eighth inch hose. I, I don't know why it's they're always out of those. Maybe it's the most popular one. So I just decided to kind of go to Home Depot and and kind of figure it out, and then just use the seven eighth inch bits and uh, go from there. Um, it works out pretty good though. Cause they use those sun sun filters on them. Yeah. I've used those before. Actually, I have one, um, I have an Oscar tank and I set that up. Oh, probably like four years ago. And it's just somehow I, I kind of got it perfect. So I have like no maintenance and it, the filter is still going after like four years. I was pretty surprised considering what I paid for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I will. That's the thing is, dude, is uh, if you compare it to a Marine land or a fluval, that thing is godly because it's like, uh, what's, what's the best way to put it? It doesn't leak after, you know, so many, you know, months or even a year. Um, knock on wood, but none of mine do that when I get off the phone with you. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> now that I said that, um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've really been really impressed with those guys because the, even the propellers seem to last longer on those sun suns too. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have to replace any parts constantly or nothing. And and I've had the same ones, like you said, for four years. And I really beat them up because sometimes I'll sanitize them out because I'll, I'll actually have them on the rain chambers too. And, um, you know, I'll sanitize them out twice a year, sometimes three times a year. You know, run bleach through them and then run uh, vinegar through them just to kind of, the, to uh, you know, take out the chlorine, neutralize it basically. Now, why would you why would you do that? Why would you sanitize them? Well, I mean, I, I break down the rain chambers, you know, twice a year. Um, I don't like to have them constantly running because if it's constantly running, you know, sometimes a, a buildup of bacteria would actually form inside of it. So I just kind of try and take that, you know, take that out of the equation. So I always keep my chambers, you know, really clean and, um, yeah, just uh, try to avoid any pro- problems that I have. Because, I mean, I've got such a large collection, I don't really need to be medicating animals. 
I mean, that's just medicating frogs is already a pain in the butt, you know? So, you know, medicating them, if I don't have to do that, then awesome. Yeah. No, it, def- it definitely makes sense. Um, I was, I wasn't, don't get me wrong. I wasn't being critical. I was just, I was just curious. Um, but no, it, ma- oh, it no, makes no, perfect sense. Cause you, I know you do have a really large collection. I mean, I mean, just off the top of your head, I mean, you, well, you actually kind of converted your house into your facility, right? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I would have had a, a building on the back of the house, but it, it really doesn't suit Cleveland too much when you have a small backyard. We are fixing that because we are going to be moving and actually getting a building um, where everything's going to be automated. It's all going to be on one floor, not in three floors. So I won't have to carry buckets up and downstairs. That'd be great. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think people need to consider. It's like when you're, I mean, I was having a conversation with a guy at work earlier. He goes, how many frogs do you have? I was like, uh, I, was like I got about 30. He goes, wow, it's a large collection. I was like, no, <laughs> it's not a large collection. I'm like, some of the people that I, you know, I interview on this show, I mean, they've got thousands and thousands of frogs. So, um, I mean, did you kind of start off like small and then you kind of expanded? Or, I mean, how did you get to the point where you are today? And like, I mean, how many frogs do you have and how'd you get that, that far? Oh, wow. Um, well, it's actually not nearly as many as it used to be. Uh, we've thinned down in the last two years. We're actually going to be thinning down a little more on some of the species. We're up to like 40, I think it was 47 or 48 species of tree frogs at one point. Um, and I think I was down to about 11 species of dart frog. Now I'm actually down to like three species of dart frog, which I'm, once we move, I'll actually get expand that again, but it's probably going to be more obligate than anything else. Um, but um, I, I started off with, you know, some dart frogs that I, I picked up at a show, you know, back in 92 or 93. And um, every time I bred them, I'd buy more. You know, I mean, it, I, well, actually, that's not entirely true. I didn't breed the green and blacks that I got when I first got them. Uh, I just set them up, and then I started slowly but surely buying frogs from um, one particular man, uh, probably one of my heroes, Todd Kelly, out in, in uh, Washington State. I was buying a lot from him, and uh, I started, you know, breeding probably about a year after that. And then once I learned how to breed, I started breeding on a large scale, you know, with just what I had. And every time I bred and sold frogs, I'd add to the collection. And it got to the point where I had 30, uh, probably somewhere around 32 species of dart frogs. Not That's not counting the locales, you know, like, you know, um, Capana erratus, green and black erratus from Panama, green and black erratus from, you know, uh, Nicaragua. So, I mean, I have a pretty large collection of dart frogs. And uh, started off with that, started doing the shows, you know, selling some shows while, you know, part-time when I was, you know, working full-time. And uh, then all of a sudden started getting into tree frogs. And uh, that's, I think, where the chaos really began to get excessive. So, you, say um, that like it's a, you say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> oh, it, it did get bad. It did, no, it did really get. It really. I, I almost died doing this. Really? Um, yeah. I, the way that it was getting was, I was working anywhere from sixteen to eighteen hours a day, full fledged on all the animals, cleaning, feeding, setting up rain chambers. Um, you know, it was an average of three species in the chamber. You know, each season. You know, each month. Um, and you know, some of the spawns were so large. You know, we'd have anywhere from, 
like some species like would lay only like like the lemurs they only lay like 20 eggs at a time each female where we'd have like six females drop eggs um and a lot of those you know were good you know some would go bad of course you know but it started getting to the point where i'd have like hundreds of lemur tadpoles and hundreds of you know, red eyes and hundreds of black eyed tree frogs, you know, both species of black eyed tree frogs that I was working with at the time, uh, you know, on top of like, you know, some of the monkey frogs that I would breed and, and, uh, you know, like I was breeding Tom of Turner, Hypochondrialis, uh, Volante, Bicolors were like a hit and miss because that's like the hardest frog I have to work in a work with the breeding house. Um, yeah, it was it was it was pretty pretty bad. I mean, I was also working with Calcarifer. I still work with the Cruzial Craspidopus, which is my holy grail frog. Um, now, is it true that you cashed in a, your is it true you cashed in your four hundred one k to get those? Like a moron, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and I actually don't regret it. I I don't. Um, I got to work with them prior to what's been coming in lately and I'm kind of glad I went that route rather than the ones that were coming that are coming in lately you know if I would have waited till now I mean there's a lot of problems with the ones that are coming in because they're coming in so small problem with craspidopus is is if you don't if you move them like if you ship them before their say third or fourth month they just stop eating they're very touchy like that. Once they're like past the three to four months or whatever, they're pretty much bulletproof. You know, you could shoot them out the door, no problem. But, um, yeah, but anyways, I mean, I, it got to the point where I was working 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, the one day I was so exhausted, it was around 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, after I finished my last tank. And uh, the way we do is we wash them, put them on a rack, and then, you know, so it, it holds eight tanks. And then when all the water goes to the bottom, we drain it out and then put it in front of the fan to fully dry. You following me on that? or I got you, I got you. Yeah, so that's the way it would work it. And it got to the point where I finished my last tank, I put it on the shelf, and all of a sudden I started getting lightheaded, my legs just started getting wobbly, and if it wasn't for me grabbing hold of the actual rack... I would have fell into a whole stack of tanks and bled out by morning because the wife wouldn't have heard it. And, uh, yeah, you'd be reading about me in the paper, you know. Oh, man. Well, Weirdo I'm, frog I'm, guy dies by getting impaled by his own tanks, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen. But, yeah, I, I have to. Um, Same here. Yeah, I, it's funny because I think to myself, like, well, you know, how, how, you know, how am I going to die? I mean, am I going to end up like having a heart attack in the basement while I'm like making a fruit fly culture and then like the paramedics that come and show up and be like, oh, you know, he died making fruit fly cultures, you know, and like, like why is he covered with bugs? So, you know, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> how do you explain much, something like, like that? The, you know? Right. And you feel like this is like the dumbest way I'd like to die. You know, yeah. not that you'd want to die, but you know. Yeah. Try to die doing something cool, like, you know, I don't know, jumping out of a plane naked or something. You know? But uh, <laughs> I, Well, that's probably a little bit overboard, but you get my point, you know. I mean, why die by just passing out in, like, a stack full of tanks or making fruit fly cultures? I mean, well, you could have died somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. my opinion. No, I, I, I totally understand. Although, I mean, you'd be doing what you love, I guess. But um, now... 
what, um, I mean, since you breed a lot of tree frogs, obviously having a good rain chamber is essential to a lot of those species. I mean, what, what do you think, like, if you're going to build a rain chamber, how would you build one? I mean, depending on the species. Um, I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. I mean, you can't breed, well, actually, that's not entirely true. Um, I was going to say you can't breed red eyes in a, a 10 gallon, but they tend to do it anyways, not in a rain chamber with a paper towel and a water dish in the bottom sometimes. But, um, if they really want to, they're going to, um, that's just the bottom line with tree frogs. A lot of them are a lot more finicky and they need a lot more leg room. So you got to make the cage a little larger. Um, you know, things like lemur frogs, you know, there's smaller frogs, um, AKA skeleton frogs is what a lot of people call them because they're like skinny built, you know. Um, but uh, those frogs, I mean, you could breed, you know, six of them comfortably in a 20 gallon, you know, 20 gallon rain chamber. Interesting. Whereas waxy monkeys, like the giant bicolors, the smallest cages I've ever bred them in was four foot, two foot by four foot high. That's a big. That's a big rain chamber. Well, it's not a not a big rain chamber, but I'm su- I'm surprised that you can actually get red eyes and lemurs to breed in something that small. Well, yeah, that's that's kind of where I was at too. Uh, I was kind of surprised about it as well. The lemurs do that as well. They'll lay them on the side of a water dish if they if they just are in the mood. You can't stop them. They're going to do it. You know, what are you going to do? Hold a gun to its head? <laughs> <laughs> hope not um now i mean when you do like like how would you let's we'll focus on red eyes for a minute um how would you like cycle a frog th- throughout the year before you wanted to get it to breed like let's just say that let's just start with a calendar year say it's january like where would you have the frogs in january and then how would you work them up to breeding and then kind of cool them off afterwards um if it's january in the state of ohio um Basically, our barometric pressures are so weird around, like, the end of January here, typically, um, that February is a good time to start. And you can actually keep it up until, like, like probably November, like the beginning of November. After that, they pretty much just shut up. I mean, you got to literally walk through the basement with a flashlight to make sure everybody's alive because it's so quiet. You know, but during like those, you know, during the time that it's a breeding season for them, um, which you can shut them off or and on if you really want to, just by drying them out a little bit or not feeding them as heavy, you know, things of that nature, you can kind of manipulate that a little bit. But some frogs, you know, I mean, if they get too swollen up with eggs, you know, a lot of people think that they could just reabsorb them. And I found that that's actually not entirely true. If they get swelled up with like too many eggs, they can't reabsorb those fast enough, so they just start to decay and they cause septic. So that's that's the weird part about tree frogs. I mean, I've Bottomedusa is really hardcore, like the main one that is like for that one. So, um, I mean, is that why you don't? Re- I mean, there's there's a lot of red eye tree frogs out there, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound like a real jerk when I say this, but I always kind of found them boring because I never see them, you know? I mean, I see them sitting on a leaf all day, and then at night, 
As soon as I shine that flashlight in there, I see it for about two seconds, then it's gone. I mean, what what do you think the appeal is to like red eyes and, and really like a lot of the other tree frogs, which are essentially nocturnal and you very rarely see them during the day? Well, it's, it's what your cup of tea is. You know, I mean, that's basically the bottom line. You know, um, there's a lot of people that keep, you know, the blue and black erratus. I'll be honest with you. The only time I seen those guys was when I was drinking my coffee at six o'clock in the morning when I was working for FedEx. And then when I got home, they'd be, you know, out a little bit, but during the day and my days off, they'd never be out until it was like, you know, unless it was like six o'clock in the morning or like six o'clock at night. So I don't know if they had their own little schedule going on, but they always hit. And as beautiful as those are, you know, I was like, man, where do I have these? I never see them, you know, but, uh, I mean, that's why, that's kind of the same point, I guess, is like, you know, why would you want a red-eyed tree frog if they hide a lot? Well, during the daytime, if you're, if you're into nocturnal animals and what you can do is you can actually have an atinic bulb on top of them at nighttime. So where it's dark enough where they wake up and they actually start walking around, you can actually visually watch them walk around and all that, you know, because they'll be dim enough to where they're up. Now... I've I've kind of, I've seen a couple of the YouTube videos. Now you kind of keep your breeders and your growouts a little bit different. I mean, you keep them in aquariums on dry paper towel, right? With uh, just a water dish. Yeah, yeah. That, well, the room itself is at the average of you know eighty percent humidity, so um, no really good reason. There's there's no real good reason to actually soak the, the paper towel. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's the best way that I've been able to grow them up and actually keep them sterile the entire time and we switch out all those tanks that you see in dave's cough cough video all those tanks we switch out every day you know i'm switching out 40 to, to 50 tanks a day that's crazy you know but that's the only way that we can get them to grow fast and to, to remain at a, like almost like a perfect health and when people buy them and they want to introduce them into a tank, I always tell them, look, these things have never seen a leaf before. <laughs> and they look at me with the weirdest look. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you think that I have terrariums and vibrariums all throughout my house to fulfill this many animals. I mean, I would not have a room to walk. Um, because if you have it in a, a vivarium, you obviously can't overpack it. You can't throw, you know, 50 baby red eyes in a 10-gallon tank. Or you can put a 50 uh, baby red eyes in a 10-gallon tank for just one day and then move them to another one. But you can't do that with a planted vivarium. I mean, a planted vivarium would just get trashed. You know, and then you get a lot, you get a huge spike in bacteria. Now, this is a kind of an odd question, but... Um... Once the whole COVID event started, good luck trying to buy toilet paper and paper towels where I live. Now, <laughs> did you have that same problem in Ohio? Oh, yeah. What did, you, what did you do? Oh, yeah. We got a little scared there because we started running. We usually buy anywhere from five to six. Um, it's these, they call them, let me look at it real quick. I'm standing right next to it. The triple rolls three-in-one bounties. And it's uh, 12 rolls, but it's, they're huge, you know. I mean, they're, they, they're excessive. They get a lot on them. They're equivalent to, like, 36. So, basically, 
everybody was buying paper towels. Everybody was buying toilet paper. I mean, I wasn't too concerned about toilet paper because we had two packs up there that we buy like every year. And I was like, well, good thing we bought those prior to this. I mean, I, I didn't understand why people needed to buy six, seven packs when they lived by themselves. I mean, <laughs> really? You, you, yeah. You, but you'd, anyway, you'd be surprised. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to leave that one alone. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's to another topic altogether. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, but the paper towels, it did scare us, and we did have to go and, uh, you know, to the store every day to see if they came in. And uh, we did get lucky, and we'd be able to grab one or two of them and then take them home. And then we kind of stocked up on them because if we're going through three of those a week, then we figured, well, we'll just stock up to admit this is only going to last probably this bad for about two months until summer, at least we were hoping. So we just kind of stocked up for that. Uh, now, with it coming again here, I mean, at least I'm assuming that the second wave is coming again because cold and flu season is coming. We figured we'll stock up again, so we've been buying like two extra ones each week kind of like you know put the you know stock up and put aside just in case it happens again so yeah it's definitely you know i mean it's funny because this year has been so so many things have happened but when you think about you know in the, in the hobby i panicked when i was like i'm not gonna be able to get crickets i was like i don't know if i can have stuff shipped to the house i don't know it because new york we kind of got it first as opposed to the rest of yeah, the country, it's still bad. making its way through. So I freaked. I'm like, what do I do? Am I going to be able to get feeders? I mean, am I going to be able to get, I mean, I had one, I'm sorry, I had three fruit fly cultures, I think, that I'd gotten from an expo maybe in January. I'm still working off of those. I only, I ordered three new cultures like two weeks ago because I was only doing melanogaster. And I was like, oh, I got to really put some weight on my, my bigger frogs because they're, they're just, the melanogaster isn't cutting it. So I ordered three cultures of Heidi. Other than that, those first couple of cultures just got me through the past like eight, nine months because I didn't know if I was going to be able to get any more. Oh, I understand that one. I do understand that. Um, we didn't have a problem with the fruit flies because, I mean, I still have darts. I still have a ton of glass frogs um that we produced this year and i'm just trying to raise them all up of course valeri glass frogs you can't feed them pinhead crickets you just can't the temperatures that they're kept they can't metabolize it so they went up prolapsing so we just stuck with the dusted fruit flies and all that and Heidi is probably the best thing for them because milano like you said doesn't really put the weight on them and um but and to add more fury to the whole cricket problem, we do have a cricket shortage right now. Um, the company I deal with, they don't have a problem with it yet. But I know like some of the bigger companies like Gons and uh, I, I believe it was Millbrook or something like that. But they are actually low on adult crickets. So everybody's having a hard time getting adult crickets now. Now, here's the theory behind that. Here's the theory behind that. The reason I think it is because there were no expos. People would just go to the expos and they'd buy, you know, the pre-cupped ones that had like 120 to maybe, you know, well, probably about 120 crickets in there. So they'd buy like one or two of those to feed their, you know, collection for the whole month until the next show. At least that's here, how it is here in Cleveland, Ohio. We have a show every month. 
so with that being said, um, the shows weren't going on because COVID shut everything down. So everybody wasn't able to buy the cricket. So Gons has a thing where it's called a great, great program or whatever I think it's called. And I think your minimum order is a thousand crickets, but you can buy like 200 this, 200 that, 200 this, and they just charge you accordingly. So I think that's where Gons got slammed by that, by all the little, the little orders going out instead of just the big orders, like, you know, people with my size collection or, you know, some of the leopard gecko people that I know or fat tail people that I know, they, they actually have probably just as many fat tails and leopard geckos as I do frogs. So that's a huge cricket bill as well. But I think that's that's why that we have such a problem with the crickets right now. I've been buying banded just because they live longer. I mean, the... Um... The, the domestic crickets, I mean, you know, now everything is open here. I mean, like if I'm in a pinch, I don't have that large of a collection. I mean, most of my collection is dart frogs. And the mossies, I'm not, you know, I don't need to feed them like every single day because, you know, they're just, they're not, they don't have the, that high metabolism. But, you know, I can still go to Petco now and get them. But it's just, for me, it's easier to just get like 500 adult bandits because they'll live for like two or three months in my tub. Whereas if I buy the domestic ones they're dead in like a week or, or, or less. Cause I remember yeah. I bought, like I went to Petco before everything shut down. I was like, look, uh, how many adult crickets do you have? They were like, well, maybe like a hundred. I was like, I'll take all of them. And then by like three days later, like, you know, one dies and then you get that kind of ammonia odor and I don't know what it is about them, but then they all just sort of drop like flies, but I didn't have that problem with the bandits, but where I was getting from them, they were kind of rationing them. So you couldn't just buy like Necessarily, you couldn't buy a lot of a thousand. You have to buy two lots of five hundred, which would end up getting more expensive. But it was better than nothing. Oh yeah, I can imagine they raked you over the coals with that. Yeah, Oof. yeah, and then then in the shipping on top of it. But then it's like, okay, well, it's saving me the aggravation of having to go out and and you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But I can justify it because my dubia colony was also kind of downtrending, so mm-hmm. I, I needed feeders also for my you know my bearded dragon. And for my pixie. Now, my bearded dragon, I ended up getting on one of the Rapashi diets, and he really likes that. So that's cool, because now I don't have to worry too much about the dubias, too much about the crickets. So now it was really just more about, you know, my my tree frogs, which are uh, really... The only, I've only got... I've just got a white's tree frog, and I've got the, the trio of mossies. I had a couple on and off in the past, but, you know, I mean, now what I've got is definitely manageable on, like, a small number, but I don't want to dump out all that extra money in shipping unless I'm going to get a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, how many crickets would you say that you're going through, like, in a week? Um, it, it varies. I mean, this year is actually really low. Of course, we didn't do any breeding or as much breeding. Um, so our cricket bill is, like, anywhere from twenty-two to 28,000 crickets a week. So it's not too horrible. I mean, there was a point where that was the other thing, too, is, I mean, I was getting, like, 120,000 crickets a week when I had the ridiculous size collection. We had over ten thousand frogs, though. That's a large. So, that's a lot of frogs. Well, yeah, yeah, it definitely keeps you busy, but um, but the feed, you know, it it's astronomical. I mean, we're talking, you know, a lot lot to feed that every week. So, um, but that's that's what I try to do is I try to get everything up to size because there's a lot of beginners that we we deal with. And, um, you know, I mean, I don't think that people should buy two week old frogs 
you know, I think they should buy month, two month old, sometimes three month old, depending on the species. So you're going to be feeding it that whole entire time. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, a a lot of beginners, I mean, even for people who are experienced, it can be hard to get a small froglet to eat and then to put on weight and then to thrive. So I see a lot of people at expos, they're buying these really, really tiny froglets and it's like, hey, listen, that thing might not have even eaten yet. Yeah, if it's still got like a little nub for a tail, yeah, <laughs> it hasn't yeah. even had a meal yet. And um, I don't suggest, I don't suggest that even for you know I wouldn't even buy that. Uh, and I kind of know what I'm doing, but you know the thing is, is that frog right there, depending on the species, even even some of the easier species, they'll just stop eating if they don't if they are that stressed out. And I think a lot of people don't keep that in mind as well, um, but. Um, I mean, it's, it is what it is though. I mean, you know, you can only, you, you don't want to sit there and like preach it and, and tell people that, you know, while you're at a show, because then you kind of look like the bad guy, you know, but, um, you know, you're only trying to, you know, look for the frog's well-being, you know? Oh, always, always. I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, what is that an expression? Um, knowledge is knowing what to do and wisdom is knowing what not to do. So it's like you, 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 sometimes you're better off, I guess, just telling people like, no, like, look, look, um, you know, this is not necessarily something you want to take on because it's not necessarily going to be that rewarding. Correct. Yes. I mean, what are some, like, which yeah. species would you recommend to a beginner? Uh, as far as beginner tropical frog. Um, let's, let's just say, tr- say tree frogs. Tree frog in general, like a be- good beginner Typically, like white tree frogs, those are, I mean, you really got to put those in a microwave to kill them. Uh, I, I don't suggest doing that. Yeah, but, please uh, nobody do that. <laughs> don't yeah, do disclaimer, that. Disclaimer, no, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not going to end well. Um, but the, if people wanted to move like more of a tropical species, I'd probably say like, and they got access to like quarter inch crickets, cinnamon frogs, firebelly toads. Uh, that's a big even find firebelly toads anymore. Um, uh, then if you want to kind of upgrade, you can go with, um, lemurs are actually easier than a lot of people think they are. Um, it's just, they look so fragile. So I'll, I will give it that. They just don't like to be kept at high temperatures. So if you have a, a room that's high temperature, disregard the cinnamon, the, the fire belly and the lemur frog. Um, because they really can't handle it above 75, 78. Um, same thing with some of the glass frogs, but that's, that's more of the advanced, I think, mm-hmm. on some of the glass frogs. But the, the next one I would probably go with is your typical red eye. I really do, you know, think that that would be a good beginner tropical tree frog. Now, how would you recommend you someone? Usually... Oops, sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, it's fine. I, I, I kind of paused there and that's my fault, but the, the reason I was saying red eyes is if you can get them at or where they're, and what I recommend is getting them where they're at least eating quarter inch crickets. You could usually get those from a pet shop. Usually, right? I should say, let's just stress the word. Usually, you can get quarter yeah. inch crickets at a pet shop. You want to make sure that you've got a steady supply before, before you get the animal, because that's the last thing you want is to be. A, oh, we only have three quarter or one inch crickets, and it's like, ugh. I mean, how would you recommend setting up? for a red-eye tree frog let's just say that you had a beginner come in they wanted some you know ask you some questions like what would you recommend the setup that they 
keep the animal in? Well, um, if it's just a juvenile uh, to half-grown, somewhere around there, I'd probably suggest keeping it on paper towels. Um, It's a lot easier when you keep them in a smaller environment and um, you basically have, you you can actually start to bowl train them, you know, put the crickets in a bowl to where you can put the bowl inside the vivarium and you have less crickets die in the cage, which means, of course, less bacteria and mold and fungus. So if you could get the person to actually house the animal in a small environment, say it's just like a 10 gallon, you know, they could use the screen top, but they got to cover like 90% of the screen top so they can allow some ventilation, but yet keep it humid in there. And um, depending on how dry their house is, that is. But um, my suggestion would be to grow it up in that until it's at least three quarters grown. And then you could put it inside a planted terrarium. Um, A lot of people buy these, really whacked out, jacked up plants. And I'm going to be honest with you, the best plants to use are the simplest ones. In other words, sometimes less is more. So if you went with pothos, you went with peace lilies, you went with uh, simple philodendrons, things of that nature, something that's going to help clean the tank because they're going to absorb a lot of nitrates in that tank. You know, and on top of having your bioactive and all that, that's probably your best bet. Um, the thing I do recommend though, is no matter who you buy them from, I mean, there's some plant growers that actually say, oh, we don't use fertilizers. I'm going to censor myself and to say, that's just cow done. Um, <laughs> good, good save. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not always good for that. As you, you know, a lot of people that probably know me are like, usually you're like Deadpool. So what the heck? But it, the thing is, is you want to make sure that, um, you know, you rinse the plants off, the roots and all. And I actually soak the plants in tap water, like lukewarm tap water, for about 20 minutes. And I'll actually rinse them off again before I plant them into the tank. Now, this is while you're raising up your red eye. You're building your tank, and you let it set in and grow for at least a month. And you let your bioactive kind of, like, kick up a little bit, you know, like your springtails or your dwarf white, white ice pods or what have you. <clears throat> so this way, you get a good kind of like a good ecosystem going for them already. So by the time they're actually ready to go into that tank, you know, they'll be bowl trains because you're bowl training them in that 10 gallon. And then all you have to do is just clean out that bowl and um, put a new towel down and put new crickets in every two, three days. And then make sure you change the water dish every day. Now, what about lighting and, and heating? Like, would you would you would you recommend having like warmer temperatures during the day and then doing a night drop? Absolutely, I recommend that for any animal. Um, I don't think there's any animal on this planet that, other than us that's at the same temperature day in and day out. You know, day, nighttime, whatever. There's always a nighttime drop. And what I've read that it's it's really important for an animal to have a daytime high. Like, say, your typical red eye would be like a daytime high of about 80, 82, which you can use some artificial heat, but you don't want to cook them. So you want to make sure that, you know, you get the right heating element. Um, and then a nighttime drop down to about 74. And that's how they can properly metabolize food is when they have the ups and downs. The same thing with dark frogs. I mean... We, we noticed when we did dart frogs, we had daytime highs of about 78, 80 degrees, and then nighttime drops down to 72, and 
I think that was the best per, you know production we ever had out of dark frogs. Yeah, I um, I mean, in my setup, I have everything on timers, so I've kind of got each each vivarium I have it kind of is a little bit different, just depending on where I have it placed in my basement. Like I said earlier, like my mossies are in the kind of the coolest corner, but I have my I have two forty breeders with my um, Azurius and my Patricias. Those get up to around maybe like seventy six, even seventy eight during the day, but then at night that'll just that'll drop down. So. I have a good gradient, and it's funny because I'll actually see a lot of the frogs that I don't normally see during the day. I'll actually see them out at night, even if they're a diurnal species. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I had that with my Lukes. They always did that for some reason. Yeah, they just they just kind of show up after lights out, and it's like, I mean, even sometimes I'll see them active in like the middle of the night. So I'm going to assume it's, you know, it's like you said, you know, you're going to want to have access to different temperatures. They might like it at a certain time of night or whatever don't know well you also got to realize when the light goes out the humidity spikes in there good point you're right so you're right you know a lot of amphibians like when i was in costa rica i actually seen green and blacks out you know when it was dark they really didn't move much but they were out they weren't hiding which was odd you know i mean because if it was a tank i would never see them (laughs) you know so i mean I was just kind of like, well, that's just different. Now, here's the even weirder part about Aratus in Costa Rica. The sun comes up at 4 o'clock in the morning in Costa Rica. It's odd, I know. But when I was actually walking to, to breakfast and walking down the path, the path is getting blazed by sun because the sun's just coming straight through. And here's all these Pamelio and all these Aratus on a rock pavement sunning themselves. I mean, I had to watch where I was stepping. That's wild. Is that <laughs> odd or what? But so, no. Go ahead. I'm. So, I'm I keep interrupting you. I'm sorry. So that's what I was going to say. A lot of people have to realize that some tree frogs, you know, like red-eye tree frogs, for instance, when we, I actually heat temped one with a temp gun. I actually really geeked out when I went down there. Had a, I had a temperature gun. I had a weather station. It was checking barometer, you know, barometric pressure, humidity, temperature, the air, and all that stuff. But I would also have a heat gun where I'd point it at an animal that was, you know, on a leaf or whatever and see what temperature they were. Uh, I had water probes that was testing the little streams, what temperature they were, especially in the glass frog areas. Um, and, you know, because there's none of that data out there. So I was like, well, what is the curious thing? You know, what, what is the problem that we have with a lot of these animals? I guess we don't get that in-depth with it. But when I hit that red-eyed tree frog, he was at 92 degrees. Wow. that's It's, it's funny you, because it's, you just, it's, point. Yeah, it's not something that you would think would, would happen. But it's funny that you mentioned that about the basking. I was talking to um, Troy Goldberg in an earlier episode, and he uses UV. He uses, like, uh, it's a bird light. He uses it, I think, maybe like once a week, once a month. I, I totally forgot what he said, but... He says Pamelios will actually come out and they'll start basking in it, mm-hmm. which is interesting oh, yeah. because you wouldn't you wouldn't think that they would willingly expose themselves to higher temperatures, more you know, um, brighter lighting, et cetera. You you wouldn't think that that would be the case, but apparently it is. I mean, if you, you obviously you're seeing it in the wild. You want to hear something even more wild? So by the river, they had like these stumps with bromeliads growing out of it. No trees above it or nothing like that. And it was just kind of like open. 
And as we're walking up to it and we're looking at bromeliads, there's bromeliad in it with tadpoles, like they're feeding their, their young. And after mama or whoever was in there hopped out, I basically took the temperature probe, you know, the water probe, put it in there. The, the water was at like almost like 89 degrees. <laughs> That's nuts. It, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you, can't yeah. re, you can't replicate that in a tank, though. Yeah, yeah. So you have to kind of you have to kind of watch your parameters with different animals, I guess. But um, it's just it's funny because things down at Costa Rica. I mean, people always say, you know, you don't want it to get above, say, like eighty-five. Well, I mean, is that is that a consistent thing? I mean, do you want not consistently getting above eighty-five, or do you want to periodically expose them to that once in a while, just to kind of replicate some of the variability that they would have in a natural environment? See, in a tank, I don't think you could get away with it. It's just too confined. It's just too confined. So, um, yeah, there's a big difference between being out in the nature and being inside of a tank. I mean, you you could have several problems happen inside of a tank. You know, um, a a microbiologist friend that actually lives over in Brunswick, you know, he was explaining to me that, you know, the temperature gradients outside when I was explaining the whole thing about the, like the familial and with the red eye and all that, he says, we got to realize the temperature gradient outside, it's also getting sterilized by fresh air, you know, the UV rays, all that stuff, the natural UV rays, which is, uh, I think he called it UVC. Um, yes, that's, that's correct. Yeah. UV, UVC so, light is like almost, um, like, you know, the UV light in the, um, the sun, sun filters that's supposed to mm-hmm. be UVC. That's what sterilizes it. Yes. And how he explained it was, think of it this way, is in a tank, you can't contain that. It actually will spike in growth. You'll have bacterial, you'll have fungal, you have mold and all that. It's basically like a Petri dish, a giant Petri dish. You know, so that makes a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. I mean, it just seems that the animals don't, they don't tend to like being in a tank at that temperature for so long, like they do out in the wild. So... I mean, one of the analogies I like to tell people is like, look, you know what, if you have an animal in, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a confined space. I mean, nobody is keeping a single pomilio or a pair of pomilio in an entire bedroom. You know what I mean? No one's keeping them in like (laughs) 100, 200 square feet. It's just not happening. So they can have that variability. But, you know, I think that you're right. It's one of those things that people kind of have to realize is that it's kind of like... uh, it's like living in a single cell. You know what I mean? Like if you were, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, if you were like locked up in jail, but you know, if you lived in one room of your house, you're going to get kind of sensitive to what goes on around you. I mean, if it's 80 degrees in there all the time, you're going to be pretty miserable because you can't walk away from it. You know what I mean? If, if it's 85 degrees outside, you can still go in your house, you can go in the pool, whatever. You can avoid that temperature somehow, somehow, some way by, avo- you know, by avoiding it. Yeah, you can thermoregulate. Exactly. Good old thermoregulation. <laughs> um, one of the, you know, you learned a lot about studying these species in Costa Rica. I mean, what 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 are some things that you picked up in Costa Rica that you really weren't aware of before? Uh, just in one, just in just you know, in general. 
you know, the, the, the one thing that, um, I'll say is like what I was telling you before about the average temperatures that I was seeing the animals being exposed to for one, but seeing their environments and noticing that, you know, and like I said, when I was by the red, I also had like the weather station there and I was checking the humidity in that station. You literally hung it next to the leaf next to him. And even though it was 90 some degrees, like I, I think it was like 93 or 94 degrees at the top of the hill. The humidity was still like, you know, 65, 70%. It was kind of fluctuating. So, and I think that's because of the air, you know, the air movement. But again, you know, that's something that, you know, I didn't even really think that red eyes would even do that in a while. I thought it was just, yeah, I thought it was actually higher concentration of humidity than that. But, you know, as it turns out at nighttime, that's when it's just ridiculously sticky and your skin starts to condensate. And, you know, it's literally saying the humidity is 89%. Eh, that's a big difference, you know. So um, that was one thing I learned. Uh, I did learn that uh, where I found Ibricata, that the temperature where the Ibricata were was ungodly hot and i was under the impression that they couldn't handle it above 78 degrees well apparently they can because it was in the 90s there too you know things of that nature i mean it was just really interesting to see it and you know i mean that's the other thing too is at nighttime the temperature never dipped down below 78 degrees the whole time we were there Interesting. We stayed at seven different places in Costa Rica. Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the temperature fluctuations throughout different places was ridiculous. It was off the charts. You know, like I was telling you about the red eye at the top of the hill, 92 degrees. You get down to the bottom of the hill, and the air temperature was 74 degrees. The air was so stagnant that you did start to condensate. And I'm sitting there hitting frogs you know, that are in that area. I, I don't even know what the hell they were, to be honest with you. I, I completely didn't even look it up i don't know why there's some kind of arana species but they're only like you know when i hit them with the temp gun they're only at like 74 75 degrees and at nighttime when we came back it was down to 65 degrees so i mean there's a lot of microclimates down there that you got to actually consider too which i'm actually speaking about where the glass frogs are found by the way the valerie i got you i got you that's that's another reason that I firmly believe that they do not like to be kept warm at all. So, um, <clears throat> but I, I, like I said, I did learn a lot about um, the animals. I mean, you, if you've been doing it for so long and you ever think that you ever know it all, just shut up because that's where you went wrong. That's all I got to say. Is that that's exactly where you just went wrong. So. I definitely, I definitely agree with you. I mean, it's easy. Like, I mean, look, you know what? I've been keeping frogs a long time. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm an expert. You know, it's really, it's really easy to do the same thing for a very long, long, long time, assuring yourself that you're doing it the right way. And then you reach a certain point and you realize that, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I should really kind of rethink the way I'm doing things. Exactly. Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. It was a wake up call. It really was when I went down there. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. I mean, it's it's one thing to watch a bunch of frogs in boxes. It's got to be another thing entirely to see them in their natural environment. Mm. Now, one of the one of the species that that like for me has kind of always intrigued me is um, the Phyllomedusa bicolor. 
I never see them at shows. And I know from kind of what you hinted at earlier, they're a little bit more challenging. I mean, what, like, how would you recommend like getting involved with them? Like what, what kind of captive environment would they need? And like, how would you go about breeding them? Since it is such a large and burly frog, um, if you wanted to build a natural environment, it would have to be, let's just say two bicolors. And it, this is just my opinion. If you were to build a natural environment where it was high humidity but yet still had circulation, because they are way up in the canopy. A lot of people don't realize they're way up in the canopy, and they're getting beat by sun. They're getting beat by the um, the winds, you know, that's up there, whatever air movement, rather. So with that being said, you'd have to build a pretty tall tank and, and be able to sustain enough humidity coming from the ground to keep them happy in, in uh, more of a bioactive setup. And it would have to be basically a shower stall for one. Really? That big? Um, in my opinion, that if you wanted to build something where you're not going to have problems at all, unless you're going to be in there cleaning a lot, that would probably be the size for just one. Now, if you just don't mind maintaining it once or twice a week or even every other day or every day, um, I mean, I house mine in 20-gallon tanks, you know, like two to each one, and I'll change their paper towel, wipe down their sides really well because they do shed. And when they do when they do shed, they'll leave it on some on the glass or whatever. you got to wipe that off because I firmly believe that the um, shed is actually just as toxic as fecal or urine once it starts to decay and can collect, you know, just as much bacteria. Plus the peptides that are in their skin and all that, it's... It could probably tox them out if you don't. You know, and then what, I, what I'd recommend is you can get those bendable vines, not the ones that are made by Exoterics. I think they're really rough on their feet, but there's one that's made by Flukers. It's smooth, and it's more of a paper product that it's wrapped in. And when the crickets chew on that, it doesn't really become toxic to the frogs, I've noticed. Whereas the exoterra, it seems like I'd have some animals actually start to kind of get sick. Huh. So, that's, that's unless it was leaching from the exoterra vine itself, I don't know. But I did notice crickets chewing on the exoterra vine, and then when the frogs would eat them, basically they would start to, you know, kind of go downhill a little bit. So I switched them out. That That's interesting. You know, I mean, I know in in the snake community, a lot of people are concerned about things like outgassing. Um which is for anybody who doesn't really know what that means. It's um, whenever you manufacture um, something that's artificial, like, like a plastic or whatnot, there are kind of like microscopic bubbles of gas in there. And when you expose them to heat, certain situations, that gas will essentially like come out. It's like when you get into a car, the reason that you have that new car smell is that actually the vinyl that's outgassing. So when you get into your car and it's hot and you're like, Oh, it smells good in here. That's actually minuscule pockets of gas that are coming out. So it'd be interesting if, if, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you, they do bask. So I'm assuming you're going to keep them under like a slightly warmer temperature than you would most other species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually only have their basking lights on for like uh, two hours a day. Um, well, what I mean is, that... what I mean is like, um, you know, it'd be interesting if like the exoterra vine, if somehow that's outgassing, you know what I mean, from the extra heat, and that I, I don't know, I'm just kind of just kind of speculating. That's true, I didn't think of that. That's true, I didn't think of that. 
Well, let's, let's, let's go back with that. Now, with those gases that you're talking about and, and the, the gas pockets, rather, a lot of people use that, that stuff called great stuff. Now, that is an open cell phone. And this is actually proved out by a few people. And that's why I always, always, well, I'm not using it. You know, if anything, I'll use pond foam because it's more fish friendly. That's what I use. But great stuff. Yeah, great stuff has a tendency. It's it's an open cell foam. So basically you can cover it with silicone all you want. Now, I've talked with the actual American sealants that actually makes like DAP, GE, D, you know, GE or whatever. And... um I asked them, I said, is that 100% silicone? Is that safe for animals? They said, absolutely not. I said, I'm sorry, what? They're like, well, for one, for what you're trying to apply it to, it doesn't bond to great stuff once it's cured. It doesn't properly bond. So it'll actually pop off over six months with the humidity. Because I was explaining to them what I do. And thank God he told me this because he said, what will happen is it'll start to pop off and it'll start to leach into the soil or the water that you have going on in the tank and probably won't happen right away but after about six to eight months you'll start to see some of the animals start to swell and bloat what it is is they're they're basically tossing out from that gas Uh aha yeah so that's why a lot of people you know who are so gung-ho on the great stuff i mean i understand uh, you know they've got great intentions with it but to be honest with you i mean it's kind of unsafe and that's why i was actually looking into different products like pond foam like you were using but then i also found something else called um, universal rocks and that stuff is actually safe for the animals it doesn't break down underwater it doesn't you know put out any gases it's actually safe and it looks great actually it looks awesome so um, I used to be a distributor for them. I, I stopped because I, I really don't do the show circuit with the, that stuff anymore. I just use it for my own use now. And um, if you ever like look them up online, I mean, you'll spend all day. They got thousands of products. You know, I think um, I've yeah, they I've been, actually have. I've been on their website right? a couple of times, just kind of like window shopping. They they do make some pretty impressive things. You got to see the vines they made for the Avatar thing down in, in uh, Orlando. They actually sell that vine. It's actually formable. Like, you know how the, um, what is it called? The exoterra that we were just talking about, it's formable because it's got a wire in the center of it? Yes. They actually make a universal rock vine. You can get it in half inch, one inch, two inch, and three inch. I actually got the three inch too for the bicolors. They love that thing. They climb all over it. Um, but that's, that product right there is like one of my favorites. It comes in a 10 foot vine it's kind of expensive, but this stuff is never breaking down. Yeah. Well, you get, you get what you pay for too. So, I mean, you, you want to invest money into a good product. That's, that's the most important thing. I don't know. I mean, I've done builds with different materials. I've used, I've used the pond foam. I mean, I, I started using it because it was, it was black and it shows up less than the, the white uh, or the yellow great stuff. I mean, it's more expensive, but I, you know, I don't know. I've done all different things. And every time I do something new, I'm thinking like, well, you know, is this going to be a problem or not? I mean, I know a lot of people who've done it successfully and with different results, but you know, it's interesting. You're right though. You know, you reach out to, 
the uh, you know the manufacturer of a certain chemical and you ask them you know well what can this be used for and you're right you're probably going to get a very very different answer from what you'd expect well whether they were giving me a disclaimer or not i actually just didn't want to risk it i mean i understand um, i understand you know i mean i to me just you know just to make a tank look pretty i don't want to put an animal's life at you know risk <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just not in my book you know you know, if I'm going to spend this much time working on animals, I obviously love them. So, I mean, I, I really didn't want to watch them perish. Uh, plus, they, they do get expensive after a while. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I, that's actually going to kind of lead into my next question. I mean, you have obviously a lot of frogs and you have a lot of rain chambers and whatnot. I mean, what what's your attitude towards, like, water quality? I mean, are you using reverse osmosis water? Are you using tap water? Like, what's, what's your take on the water situation? Oh, boy. Well... Um, well, for, for misting systems, I generally use distilled water. And a lot of people are like, isn't that dangerous? Well, no, actually, it's not. Um, reverse osmosis, you can use that, um, you know, as far as your misting and all that. Uh, I like to use, like for rain chambers in general, um, I like to use something that's got a li- little bit back into it because you don't want to take out too much of the trace elements of the water because then you wind up having it where it takes the, it takes it out of the animal. And I mean, they did a study at Bowling Green where they were doing tadpoles and they had tadpoles and RO, dechlorinated tap water, spring water, distilled water, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they found that the safest thing to use for amphibians was three parts RO, one part to took this uh, dechlorinated tap water. Okay. And I found that interesting. I said, so what was the result with the, um, RO one. Well, the tadpole imploded. It it imploded. Imploded. Okay. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> now that scares the crap out of me. <laughs> he goes, it is the you know the professor who I was talking to. She's she basically said, well, think of it this way, Mike. Whenever you get a dishwasher or a washing machine, and it says on there if you're using reverse osmosis on this unit and the warranty is void, what would that tell you? That's a good way of putting it, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I was like, well, I missed with RO and Distor. She explained that, well, what is happening when you're misting is it is actually picking up particles in the air where it's not going to take it out of the animal. You know, it's going to pick up some essential or, or trace elements that are in the air. And I'm like thinking, what could be in the air? Well, apparently there is. You know, we breathe it in every day, I guess. But uh, <clears throat> she said that that would be perfectly fine. Yeah, there, there is actually. I was, I had gotten into an argument with someone a while back, um, as I often do, um, <laughs> about. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, well, it was, it was, it was a civil argument. But um, this person was saying, like, look, well using reverse osmosis water is the same as rainwater. And I said, well, it's not necessarily true. And I, I read a couple of studies. I, I can't, I can't cite them right here and now because I don't have them in front of me, but, um, essentially what it said in the study. I think I actually read the same thing. The mineral content or the, or the, the, I don't even want to say minerals, but the, the, I guess micronutrients or whatever you want to call it, uh, they vary by location to location. So ultimately what happens is 
when it does rain, it's picking up some of those micronutrients that are in the air and that's still falling to the ground. Or if it's, you know, if, if it's going across rock, like certain rocks contain more nutrients than others. I mean, like, for example, like if you have an aquarium and you use a particular type of rock or typical type, uh, excuse me, a particular type of gravel, you're going to get a diatom bloom because it has more nutrients in it than, say, a different type of rock. So rainwater is not the same as RO water because it comes into contact with so many of these other things before it even hits the ground or then after it hits the ground. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they say sandstone. And, um, there's this one that they call lucky stone that they sell at home Depot. Uh, it's like a white rock, but it's actually kind of like a quartzy kind of rock. Um, but it's got sand in it and that one actually would grow more diatoms, which you're explaining, than other things, which would actually, in fact, help purify the water. Now, you use diatoms as almost like a uh, like a feeder for some of your tadpoles, right? Well, for the glass frogs, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't just, I mean, with the glass frog tadpoles, I feed a variety of, um, uh, they call it pleco diets, but it's like algae wafers. Um, it's not the two-in-one either because the two-in-one actually posed a little bit of a problem with polluting the water too much because it didn't seem too interested in that centerpiece, which I think is some kind of an animal protein. But the other thing that I actually feed on is soil and green. But I do let the sandstone or the quartz rock that I'm talking about actually get a little bit of diatom, and I have watched them actually chew on that as well. Now, um, I was hoping to actually experiment with that with harlequin toes before I had a very major mistake. Um, just to let you know and everybody else know, chillers can fail and actually make the water too cold. <laughs> oh, um, boy. I don't like where this is going. Oh, yeah. That, that was a horrible day. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. The, the worst part was that they were on loan, and I felt so horrible for the person that loaned them to me. Um so next time they come in, I actually am buying the entire group because I, I feel like that was my fault. Uh, I, I, I figured the chiller, I didn't, have to, I didn't have to monitor it. So, but yeah, they can fail and they can actually, the water got down to about 53 degrees or something like that, something ridiculously low. It was really cold. But, um, but yeah, the uh, diet times were probably important for a lot of tadpoles. I mean, I've actually noticed that when I was uh, raising up some of the monkey frogs. Um, they would actually start nibbling away at the rocks when it didn't look like there was anything there. But, you know, as I was told, there's always something on those rocks growing, you know, so. Yeah, they sell it as, as pea gravel in, in Home Depot by me because I bought several bags of it. And I'd used it, you know, because it was it was cheap. And then I got these huge like diatom blooms. I mean, I've still got one. I've got this one aquarium. I mean, I ended up just shutting the lights off and just leaving it because I don't have anything in there. I don't have any animals in there. And um, it, no matter I mean, I tried changing the pH. I tried loading it up with like Indian almond leaves to get the pH to be more acidic. Nothing. I mean, it, and, but it's all because of this this pea gravel that just, like you said, it has so many nutrients in it. It's just diatoms just thrive on it. Correct, yeah. And that's, that's probably why a lot of the rivers and streams have the nutrients that the animals need, too. I mean, if, if rainwater didn't do that, then, you know, of course, that would mean the animals don't need those essential nutrients, which that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, see, my I use RO, but 
My my issue here is, and I, I've talked about this in other episodes, is um, without getting too specific, my where I live on Long Island, we have several different water districts, and each water district is essentially it, it's like a private entity, with the exception of um, there's a few that are kind of like big corporate entities, but um, my water district has issues with pollution from uh, prior usage by the military. So my concern is, yeah, so my concern is, you know, um, heavy metals, basically any, anything that could, could ultimately be a carcinogen. I mean, we get reports from the water district quarterly about what's in there, and they do make a good effort to process it out. But we also have extremely high rates of, like, breast cancer, testicular cancer, you know, just different reproductive cancers here on the lawn. I don't know if it's just because everyone lives, like, right on top of each other, but the cancer rates are really, really high here. Can you pin a correlation between water quality and that? Well, no, not officially, but because my amphibians are, I know, are a lot more sensitive. That's why I use RO exclusively for the misting, just because I don't want to expose them to anything that could potentially be problematic, which you wouldn't normally encounter in another municipal supply or private supply. Other than that, I'll generally just use bottled water. You know, in some some occasions I will just use like aged tap water, but I try not to use it for anything that the frogs are going to like soak in or, or I'm going to be putting them into a lot of contact with. Right. I, I would have to go with the same method that you're going if that's the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, now, since you bring that up, um, we have a problem here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, yes, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. That doesn't make me a bad person. Um, <laughs> the problem that we have here is water big time. Um, not as bad as like Flint, Michigan. I think, I think that's where they have the lead problem. We have a problem with two or three times a year we'll have um, where the lake will actually turn. And when it does that, we get a lot of iron and magnesium in our water lines. And, um, I mean, I, I just actually put a thing up on Facebook uh, about a month and a half ago. Literally less than 24 hours. I only ran, I think, maybe, well, well, it's a 50-gallon a day. So but I think I ran uh, 20, 25 gallons through it. So that's like basically... Because it takes four gallons of water to make one gallon of water. So you're talking like 100 gallons. This RO sediment filter was already like orange-brown. Yep. Oh, yeah. And now, I mean, I've had the same uh, sediment filter on there for about a week and a half, and it hasn't even got to that kind of like a orangey-white. <laughs> That's when you really got to start changing. But we had that problem. And also during the summertime, they jack up the chloramine so high that basically when it comes out of the tap, it smells like you're, you're next to a pool. Yeah, it's, so it's the same. It's that, the same here. Same here. Yeah, I think that's the same where it is everywhere, you know. But uh, I don't know about the the magnesium and iron part. But uh, um, now I do know people that live probably about 20 miles away that don't depend on the lake water. They actually get it from a rock quarry and they have zero problems. This is actually where we're planning on moving, by the way. <laughs> so I don't have this issue. I'm actually getting a rain soft system, putting it, putting it on the house too. So this way it's not completely corrosive, but 
at the same token, it's it's safe for the animals and me. Um, but I think that the problem that they have there in Long Island, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's probably the same problem we're having here, but they, it seems like they have more of a constant thing. If you have people with that much problems with cancer, that's probably the majority of the reason. I think I read something about that where water quality can actually determine the health of the actual community. I mean, it's, it's, it is very true. I mean, you know, over the past, uh, I mean, I'm 41. And when I was a kid, we had a lot more amphibians. We had, you know, we had American toads, we had leopard frogs, we had, um, we had bullfrogs, we had green frogs. And, you know, as I got older, I wasn't finding them in my grandparents' backyard. I wasn't finding them at like local, we, we have these things here called sumps, which is basically like a drainage for rainwater. So when it rains, mm-hmm. it, it fills up the sump and then there'll be little canals that kind of take it back and forth. I stopped seeing those, you know, by the time I got to high school and now it's like, I see like nothing. And my, you know, my kids would talk to my, my mother-in-law, their grandmother, and the story was, oh, yeah, we know in, in the 60s that you'd be mowing the lawn and frogs would be diving out of your way. We don't have that anymore. Now, the thing about our water supply here is we run on aquifers. Now, what an aquifer is, is we don't have a reservoir. Like New York City, they have the reservoirs upstate. That's where they get all their water from. We basically have to drill down to a, a layer of water that's way, way, way down there and then pump it up to the surface because... The layers immediately below the surface are effectively, you know, contaminated. And where I am, the military actually ended up um, footing the bill for the cleanup, which was in excess of, of quite a few million dollars. But, you know, everyone's water supply is different. So there's even places out on further on the, on the further uh, out east on Long Island and also on the um, like Fire Island, they have artesian wells, which aren't that shallow. But everybody's water quality varies from from municipality to municipality. But it's it's you're right. It's very easy to assume that because all this pollution is here, that it's going to affect people, you know, accordingly. So I, I have people I have conversations with, like, oh yeah, I use like tap water. I'm fine. I'm like, well, I, I don't really trust my tap water. And you're right. Like in the summertime, <laughs> as that water temperature goes up, they jack up the the chlorine content. In fact, you know what? Actually. In New York State, also something to bear in mind, I, I, I was a plumber for 15 years. And I dealt with a lot of the local water districts because people would have problems. And people started saying to me, how come the water tastes like chlorine so much? I said, I don't know. And I ran into one of the guys from the water district. And I said, hey, what's going on with the water? He goes, state regulations. So as far as I know, in New York State, they elevated the contents of, I guess it would be chlorine and chloramine, to meet some sort of standard, what it is, I don't know, but it seems like they jack it up more in the summertime. I guess it's because the increase in temperature might have something to do with, you know, bacteria thriving in the pipes. Believe it or not, the reason copper pipes are used is copper and brass is antimicrobial. And not a lot of people realize that, but on the same token, you want to remove a lot of that from your water supply, from your water that you would use in your vivariums because copper has been, you know, copper has, like I said, antimicrobial p- properties, but it can also inhibit plant growth. Well, the, the water the, through copper lines also, the copper can leach into the, the water. Yes, that's, um, which is toxic yeah. Amphibians as well. Yes, that was. Um, but you, you got to realize is that the pipes underground are not copper. 
We we have some here. Believe it or not, we actually in New York City, some are actually made out of wood. Yeah, wood. I'm serious. Listen, my 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 father-in-law was a plumber back in going back into the 60s, and in New York City there are, believe it or not, wood water mains, and there's also a lot of lead water mains out there too. So that's another thing. You know, if you're in an area that's that's older like New York City, you're gonna have pipes that are made out of all sorts of weird stuff, ductile ductile iron, lead, brass, and like I said, even wood. I know it sounds ridiculous, but 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 I've never seen it, but I know guys who have. I, I've heard about the the lead before. I mean, the lead is is still a big problem in a lot of major cities, but the wood one has got me stumped. I no pun intended. Um, <laughs> I really uh, I I didn't see that one coming. I didn't. I mean, wood of all things. But, yeah. yeah. I mean, if it had to do something back then, I'm sure they didn't have PVC back then. That's for sure. No, but, no, um, no. Now I do realize that in some of the newer developments that they're actually doing. Actually, they're doing it like that in Ohio now. Uh, one of my construction buddies was telling me, he goes, you know, the weirdest thing I had to do the other day, I said, what, you can put a water main down in this real thick PVC. I go, wait, 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 that'll actually hold? That'll hold up better than a lead pipe. Yeah. You mean it's safer than a lead pipe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Will it hold up to the cold? Yeah. So, Lead's weird. I mean, you know, one of the one of the theories that I heard, and I, again, I I don't want to I don't want us to get into this whole big water quality water quality discussion. No, but, yeah, I know, um, I get you. Uh, you know, years back, I, I you know, real old plumber was telling me, he says, and I said, well, how come we use lead pipes? So why are people getting lead poison now and not the way they were in in the past? Because the word the word plumber comes from plumbus, which is which means lead, which they used in ancient Rome. Well, what he told me was, he goes, look, you know what, as the quality of the rainwater has changed, meaning like acid rain and different, you know, different chemical components that are get inside the rain, again, changing the water quality, that somehow causes the lead to, I guess, deteriorate and allow more of it to kind of flake off and get into, um, you know, get into your supply. So depending on what type of environmental conditions are going on around you, that might actually affect the lead content in your water if you have lead pipes and, and everybody has lead somewhere, somehow, whether it's just, you know, whether you have brass, cause now everything has to be lead free. So if you bought a faucet made out of brass 20 years ago, now it's probably made out of plastic because of the low lead requirements. Right. No, I, that makes sense. It makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, well, even when I was a kid and I was actually breeding fish, I mean, we, we would have to really be careful of what we're using because of the neighborhood we lived in. The water quality was just horrible. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if it was lead that we had to worry about. It was coming out brown, you know, <laughs> like in the month, like in the money pit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah remember the money pit? Like, yeah. yeah. Not quite as syrupy, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was consistently gross. I mean, I, I didn't like the taste of it. Um, I don't think anything ever had, I don't think it ever affected me, at least not yet. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the money pit, that's a funny one to actually kind of go back to. Well, if they were ever to fix up those places, that definitely would be a good definition for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, that's the other thing is people on well water, um, you know, if you're on a private well on your own land, 
that's another variable to throw in there because you can have bacterial contamination from that. I was watching this. Correct. I, I was watching this show. Uh, I can't remember when it was. It was it was on like Discovery TLC something like that. But apparently, these people were having issues with their water quality, and they had someone come in and they tested it, and the bacterial content in it was like off the charts. Well, they found out that they had a population of garter snakes that were wintering underneath the house. So, so all the waste that they were, I mean, I, I'm not a guard, garter snake expert, but I don't recall if it was either like during breeding season or the winter, but at some point during the year, the massive amounts of waste that they put off made it down into the well and actually polluted it to the point where the people were getting sick. Oh, I believe that. Yeah, I definitely believe that because uh, colubrids in general put out a lot of waste. Oh yeah, they definitely put out a lot of waste. Definitely, I used to breed colubrids too. So I mean, um, you, you know, you you get done cleaning their cage. Their cage was spotless, looked beautiful, and all of a sudden you put it in there, and then like five minutes later, there's a pile of crap in the corner. You're like, come on. Yeah, yeah. it would be like that every other day. They just take a massive dump somewhere in the cage and you're like well thank god for pine because now you can just spot clean yeah i have or aspen I, rather aspen i have a king's oh yeah pine's a <clears throat> pine's a big no-no um i have a california king snake i've had going on maybe 18 years and when i feed this guy like the next day i i'll usually get two out of him i'll feed him one mouse and i'll get two you know he'll go number two twice like I'll clean, I'll clean everything out, and like, all right, you're good. And then like the next day, it's like, oh man, you got me again. <laughs> you, know, you feel like the snake is kind of snickering at you, like snagglepuss. You know. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that like the, the colubrids have so much more personality. I mean, like this this king snake, he just kind of you can almost see like the, like he's problem solving. And not to anthropomorphize or anything like that, but you can just, they're so much more active and they, they study your behavior. They know what's going on just more so than, I mean, just in my experience, more so than pythons, but my Python experience is essentially just blood pythons. But I mean, oh. yeah, <laughs> Mike Tyson with teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I like them. I just, you know, but you know, with the Collier Brids, it's just, it's a different mode. You know what I mean? It's just like the, the interaction is just kind of on a higher level than I guess, you know, you could say. But I know some people have other experiences like with chondros. They'll get more of a, um, you know, uh, I'm sorry, not chondros. I should well, Morelia. But they'll get more of, a, you know, more of an interactive experience, we'll say, you know, with that species as opposed to other species of pythons. But, you know, you know what? We've turned the show into a water quality and a snake episode. So I got... <laughs> we. I, I broke precedent here. Well, I can keep here. talking. If you want to edit it out, we'll just go on to another topic with tree frogs. It don't matter to me. No, man. no, no. It's cool. Um, I'll tell you what, though. But, you know, before we kind of wrap it up and finish, I, I kind of wanted to talk about some of the morphs of red-eye tree frog that you're working with now and how you kind of started with that and what you're up to presently. Oh, okay. Um, well, I mean, it basically, you know, of course, we start off with normals, you know, and I worked with those for quite a while i had a group of wild caughts for close to started losing them after nine years they were wild caught so i mean i have no idea how old they were when i got them but uh 
Uh, I wound up losing the last one at around almost 12 years old. It was about 11 years old, but it was almost 12. I was like, come on, push it, push it, push it. But they look like little old people when they uh, get to that point. But anyways, uh, after that, um, we I ventured off to like the albinos and um, worked with those for a little bit. And then Marcus Brees from Simply Natural Dark Frogs, when he was in it, uh, he basically had uh, a new morph that was a more of a melanistic morph, but it had a translucent belly. And that was the purple ones. So started taking around with those and, you know, then I actually took the albinos and bred them to the purples and produced all normals, which would mean they're all double hats. Um, heterozygous basically carrying both the genes in one frog. <clears throat> so when we bred those together, then we created what was called um, uh, a T-positive albino. We also produced a uh, more of a burgundy-colored purple, which is a it's it's almost like a burgundy wine color um, instead of that deep black melanistic face. And uh, some more albinos, but then the eyes started changing. We started producing more Latinos, which is more of a whiter eye with a red rim around the eye and a red rim around the pupil. And then even oddly enough, we started producing what's, what we call the hangover morph. I mean, it basically is a normal red-eyed tree frog with a Latino eye. It's not an albino. But it looks like it has a hangover, so we just call it the hangover morph. Yeah, I've seen um, I've seen pictures of them. That the eyes are pretty wild. Yeah, I still pop them out once in a while, and I, I still I just sell them for fifty, like I do the normals as adults, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, people are interested in them. I you know I just shipped out a few the other day, um, and then I've got a couple other people that are interested in them. I don't think I have enough to fill, you know, because I don't produce that many of them. But um, there are people that are interested in them. And then of course. With breeding the, the purples and the albinos together, not only, you know, kind of come out with some different morphs of the albinos and different variations of the purples, um, we actually did produce what's called a bubblegum pink. And it's pretty much transparent, the whole body. Like when it's got, when the females have eggs, you can actually see the eggs through the back. So, which is pretty wild because the eggs are green. Really? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, so it's like you... You have a, a pink frog that's semi-transparent. It's basically like a pink glass frog with orange feet, and then it's got these see-through baby baby blue sides with the stripes. And the eyes are so deep red, it's almost like a blood red. And then, of course, then you see these little green dots on the back. But also what popped out of the pinks was it's almost like a piebaldism, where some looks like somebody just erased the pink and it's white underneath it. That's pretty cool. So we thought that was that was we thought that was kind of odd. So what we're hoping to work with this year um, is we're going to try and get the T positive more into that line to where the T positive basically brings out the natural pigment. So basically, uh, the T positive purples, where the T positive is actually coming out. I forget the the name of the actual. Um, uh, it's some kind of like a enzyme in the actual pigment comes back. Basically it looks like somebody erased the purple and there's a normal red eye underneath it. 
so you'd have blotches like by the leg area, you know, where the blue and the green are, are together on the leg. Yeah. Yeah. It basically was showing, you know, a purple leg where it looked like somebody erased part of it, where the blue and the green would actually meet. And that's, it was just odd, you know, um, we actually have solid green backs, um, T positive albino red eyes. Now with the albino red eyes and when they're T positive, it actually turns the sides, not this lavender color, like you'd see on an albino, but it actually turns it electric pink. So it's kind of odd. It, it messes with the pigment a lot more and actually kind of brightens the frog up a little bit. Um, but we were hoping to actually have that with the pinks because then can you imagine if it was bubblegum pink, had the orange, you know, feet, the baby blue sides, the deep red eyes, and then all of a sudden blotches of green. I mean, it would look like an Easter egg. <laughs> That's quite an Easter egg. Yeah, I mean, so I think it would just be neat. Now, nothing, of course, beats the normal red eye. I think the, the normal red eye is probably the most beautiful of them all. But just the morphs in general are just so bizarre that I just, I guess I felt intrigued just to keep on working with them and see what we can do with it. And, um, so yeah, we're, we're working on some pretty strange stuff. I and mean, we do have one bubble gum that is, um, we're going to probably rename it to something else, but it's, it's almost like a, a, a raspberry red. Well, the, the, yeah, like the, transparent. where the green would be, it's like red. Yeah, it's instead of it being pink, like a see-through pink, it's a see-through raspberry color. That's got to be pretty impressive. Yeah, so we're going to call those bubblicious just to screw with people. Bub- um, but, bubblicious. Uh, <laughs> why not? You know, I mean, you might as well have fun with it at least. You know? <laughs> like, like, remember but, big, um, remember big league chew. Remember that gum? Yes. Yeah. yeah. For, for anybody who's not like a thousand years old, it was like this gum that you'd buy in a pouch. It was supposed to be like chewing tobacco and they called it big league chew. Cause like the, you know, the ball players would chew tobacco, but uh, oh, never mind. I'll stop. <laughs> you get the idea. Well, then it, was, it was kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of but, gross after a while. Cause it did the flavor didn't last as long. Well, it wouldn't have just a, you had to put the whole pouch in your mouth so that you got like the cheek full effect. Right, yeah, and the, the amount of cavities you got from them was ridiculous. I remember that. Eh, you, you want to do anything, you know, you got to do it the right way. So. <laughs> cool. Go big or go small, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, and as far as the red eyes, I mean, I think that's our, our new project. We're going to work on the the bubblicious and the, the T-positive uh, bubblegum pink and see what kind of transforms from that. And... um I actually want to try and work with the hangover morph and actually add that to, I'd like to see if we could produce a purple with white eyes. We do have one purple that has half of a white eye. So we're kind of partially there. So the gene is in that frog. That'll so we be want wild. To see if we're actually, yeah, I, I think it'll be, it'll be definitely different. It'll definitely be different. So if we took a normal that had the, you know, the, the hangover, that was a normal bloodline, and bred that to that, and maybe two generations down the road, we could actually produce those. Cool. So, cool. well, listen, Mike, we got. I got to kind of, kind of wind down here. But um, I mean, before we split, is there anything else that you wanted to just touch on real quick? Or uh, 
Um, well, I mean, uh, honestly, I mean, for what we're doing right now, I mean, we're not really doing a whole heck of a lot, but we do have some animals available. Um, we're not going to be doing like the Tinley Park show. Because I know that's a big one that a lot of people like to meet us at. Um, I don't know if you heard about that. They shut that show down in October. I think I did, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's like one of the bigger ones. That makes Daytona look like a, a regional show now. Um, yeah, the Chicago show is probably your biggest show in America right now, in my opinion. Or actually the best show in America. And But unfortunately, you know, since the COVID thing is shutting everything down still, um, they're not going to have it. They may have it November 15th, but that's, that's still iffy, you know? Um, so, but yeah, I mean, we're still selling online if people are interested, <clears throat> if people are still interested in purchasing animals or if they have any questions, they can always give me a shout. It's always best to either text me or call me. So if I PM you late, <laughs> just to let people know, you know, Hey, uh, I'm doing my best. Um, but uh, other than that, as far as covering any other frogs in the house, um, yeah, I mean, the Spinoza would probably be the only one that's the eyeball that I think a lot of people are still kind of looking for. Cool, cool. I yeah. didn't know if you needed any information on that one, but uh, uh, that definitely is one of the weird obligate tree frogs. I Yeah, I'd like to get into it. I just, um, we're unfortunately... <laughs> I'm so we're running out of time. Yeah, I, I know. I spent too much time on water. I should have done this. In a, <laughs> I really should have done this in two parts because we really got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, plus, the yeah, other if you thing want to call me up next week, we can. Yeah, no, no, no. We could definitely do another episode. Plus, the other thing is, it's getting past my bedtime here. See, you, you and I keep kind of different hours. See, I'm at work at like six thirty in the morning, and I know you told me. <laughs> yeah. So, so just everyone out there, Mike. Um, I texted him earlier in the day and Mike called me at like maybe like 9.30 last night and I was sleeping. So, Mike, I don't remember anything. <laughs> I don't remember anything I said to you last night because I was in the middle of like a dead sleep. Yeah, I do apologize for that. I didn't realize. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, it's, that's the other thing is I have the vampire hours. So it's, it's, t- like, it's, it's totally I, I'm fine. I'm up at 10 o'clock in the you know morning and then I'm up till 3.30 in the morning. So I, I used to do that yeah. years ago, but now it's just, you know, my, my job. I'm like, I, I'm like, by like 9 o'clock, I'm like eating lunch and people are just getting to work. I'm like, I, I, I forget, but um, very cool, very cool. All right, so listen, Mike, um, you're... You you do you go through like Facebook, right? If people can reach you through Facebook if they want to see what you yeah, have. Yeah, I do the rainforestjunkies dot com uh, Facebook page, um, but uh, it, you know, and I and I am on Facebook, you know, kind of sort of regularly. I mean, I just go in there to look for funny stuff, um, just to kind of like you know, while I'm taking breaks or something like that. But uh, I mean, people can reach me through Messenger. Um, they can reach me through rainforestjunkies.com Facebook page. Um, emails, not so much because that just gets, that's just, you were talking worldwide. I mean, I get nailed with a lot, uh, anywhere from like 50 to a hundred emails a day and I just don't have time to sit down with it. So I always tell people just contact me through there. I can message you real quick and that's pretty much it. Um, I do most of my transactions through the phone though, believe it or not. I don't have a cart on my side or anything. and Yeah, you know, I noticed uh, I noticed that because I, I was looking around. I was like, that's odd. I was like, he doesn't really have anything he can do like online. So, Yeah, I, I like to keep it old school. Uh, I like to talk to people over the phone. I, you know, you, generally when you're typing things, uh, for one, things nowadays, 
be in I guess it's, you know, people are a little more sensitive. So you got to kind of watch what you're saying when you're like even texting, you know, because text in any point could be taken wrong. But, um, but I, I also figure that talking more on the phone, I can give them more details. Um, and, uh, you know, if they have any questions or anything like that, usually just answer it right Johnny on the spot. So, um, that's just my preferred way of doing it. I, I, I prefer to, it's more personal, you know, as opposed to emails. Gotcha. All right. My opinion, yeah. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Mike Novi. Mike, I want to thank you again for coming on. It's been an interesting show to say the least. We, uh, we got to a lot. Maybe we'll get to some more in another episode. So, all right. I want yeah, to thank you for the next episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We'll do a marathon. Well, I was, I was talking to, um, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to that another time. But yeah, I was talking to someone about doing a, uh, a collaboration and just kind of letting things go. But um, hey, listen, you know what? If everybody, you know, good conversation is good conversation. You know, it doesn't always have to be short. So again, I want to thank uh, Mr. Mike Novi for being my guest. And uh, I think I kind of nailed my outro here. So uh, I'm going to hope that everyone joins me again soon. Instead of saying I hope I hear from you soon, which I've always done, uh, I'll catch up with you guys again. So. Mike Novi, Rainforest Junkies. Thanks a lot, everyone. Take care.